Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. So with the holiday season upon us, we thought we'd share a quick post from social media. We found a pretty relatable article from JSTOR Daily. That's actually something I really enjoy in my social media feed. It's called The Gendering of Holiday Labor. And this kind of takes issue with the idea that women in heterosexual relationships still do most of the domestic work. This is something that we have talked about. This uh, kind of quick review of recent-ish scholarship on this topic suggests that during the holiday season, these tasks multiply. And that's probably no big surprise, I'm sure. We've already noted this a little bit earlier on in the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. We noted also, though, in the mental load that I think in some ways we see men in the relationships doing some more of those fun tasks. And I know that my husband has picked up the slack as far as like ordering gifts, doing some of the decorating and some things like that. And you did, I think you noted the same about your partner as well. But were there any other interesting takeaways from this article about gendering the workload of the holiday season? Yeah, there were some interesting takeaways. And you're right, the same is true for our family. My husband has really knocked it out of the park with gifts, and he always does the decorating. It's funny that you phrase it like that, because I actually don't consider those things fun at all. They stress me out. I do love the decorations. I want to have everything nicely decorated, but I do not want to do it. It's funny, I was thinking about this, because this actually goes back to my childhood. It was always my sister that was in charge of decorating the Christmas tree. And if she's listening, she'll, I don't know if she'll chuckle or still be resentful about it, but I always found ways of getting out of decorating the Christmas tree. And I still, (laughs) I think I did that again this year. So those are the kinds of things, you know, hanging up the lights and stuff that my husband does. And like I said, I don't consider them fun. And I think that goes back to what we talked about the other day. A lot of whether we feel that something is a burden or not has to do with, you know, whether we enjoy the task or not. And it's interesting to think about some of the examples that the article lists, because for me, it sort of carries through those aspects. So we have sort of three points that I think are worth highlighting in regards to this article. The first one is that although men and women perceive cleanliness equally, an unclean house evokes more anxiety in women. And during the holidays, the presentation of the home is more visible and has a heightened meaning attached to it. It's interesting to think about people posting pictures of their Christmas trees. Like you kind of look at what's around the Christmas tree and and those things certainly have an impact on me when I look at it. And then when I look around my own house and see, you know, clutter or whatever that's maybe outside of the frame, that definitely does stress me out. Doesn't necessarily lead to action. So anxiety is not always something that in that induces action, right? I think I think that's important. Like the clutter and uncleanliness stresses me out more, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be the one that does something about it necessarily. The second point that I think is worth highlighting is that the worrying about the Christmas picture 
or the card is more likely to happen with women. And the responsibility of sharing it outside of the family is also more likely to fall on the shoulders of women. Things like creating Shutterfly album, making sure that the address list is up to date and things like that. That, I think, again, mirrors what happens in our family. But also here, I'd like to point out the cards. And you and I kind of talked about this already, too. The cards are something that I feel like I almost do more for myself than other people. It sort of gets me into the Christmas mood and I I reflect on the year and I reflect on, you know, what I want to share with family and friends and whatnot. That's something that I do more than my husband. He does send some cards and he does, you know, especially like his friends and his colleagues and stuff. He'll write a note or whatever. But I do the bulk of it. But it is more important to me. And so I think that that makes sense. And then the third point to highlight from the article is that women in heterosexual relationships still do the lion's share of the housework. During the holiday season, the tasks multiply. On top of the everyday work of cooking, cleaning, and organizing, there's the added shopping, trip planning, and party throwing. And so, you know, obviously some of those aspects are falling by the wayside this year. But Erin, how much of that is still in play this year since most of us are social distancing? I think that's an interesting commentary because on the one hand, obviously, we won't be having people physically in our home. But like you said, with the social media presence, you're absolutely right. My kids were making some little videos the other day. And I was just kind of like, oh, my gosh, you know, they're not sharing them with anyone. But I'm like, this is what like my how my house is going to be preserved in perpetuity, so to speak. What I was thinking, though, is there's probably a little more pressure to have a really nice holiday at home. So while on the one hand, we're not necessarily doing that trip planning and party throwing, we are trying to make sure that it's a really special holiday. And we, my husband and I even talked about this, like what our budget is. And he was kind of like, well, we haven't gone anywhere. We haven't done anything. And let's be honest, it's been kind of, you know, not the best year for the kids. So let's, you know, let's be a little indulgent. And so I think there still is that kind of stress. I feel like in some ways, some of this has lessened up a bit. And then in others, it feels like there might be a different kind of pressure to make it special because we're not doing all those things that we normally do, whether that is maybe, like you said, attending a candlelight vigil or listening to Christmas songs or caroling or visiting relatives. A lot of that's been cut out. So I think there's more pressure on the home front. So that means we try to do more things like making homemade cookies. And in my case, you might have seen my social media post. I spent all this time making the homemade dough and they looked really nice, but I did not mix my homemade frosting quite right. And they are more pastel colored cookies than probably the traditional red and green that you'd seen. But it seems like we want to spend this time and make this really special for our children this year, just because everything else has been kind of downcast and there's a lot of fear and anxiety and things like that. Does that sort of ring true with you and your family? Were you working hard to make or keep established traditions? Yeah, that sounds about right. And what I did like about this Christmas was that there was a little bit more time to fit those things in. So, you know, going into December, I was trying to make a conscious effort to sort of spend more time with the kids and do more Christmassy things and to get them excited about the holidays. This is a funny side note, maybe funny. I don't know. For our listeners that remember that Elisa was here a few months ago, Elisa had posted these pictures of her and her kids doing salt dough ornaments. And I was like, that seems very straightforward. That seems like somebody who is not, you know, artistically inclined can pull off. And so I sat down with my kids like a few weeks ago trying to do these. 
they had, I think they had a blast. So I think it is something that like, you know, we could try to do again next year, but I have very little patient with, you know, putting the dough together and it's not quite working. Like I read it online. And then the, it, what ended up happening was that they made the shapes, we put them in the oven, they painted them. And then you're supposed to like put an extra layer of Mod Podge or something over top to like seal them or whatever. And I have been moving these things back and forth from my stove to my countertop to my kitchen table just out of the way for the last two weeks. And finally today, my husband was like, what, what is this? Like, what needs to happen with these? And so he sat down earlier today and actually mod podged all of them <laughs> because I just like couldn't get around to it, I guess. And I would just was like, it was just like the one thing that was too much. So working on definitely working on building some more of those traditions and maybe trying to spend some time, some more time like reading Christmas stories and whatnot. But I do have to think about what is enjoyable to me and what I'm good at and what I'm actually likely to go through with versus what I think other people or what I, you know, what I see other people do and what I think looks like fun. But then when I try to do it, it's really not that much fun. (laughs) That makes sense. And I know I'm going to say we're both perfectionists because that's something that I'm like, why aren't my cookies perfect? And I want to let us both off the hook a little bit because I know this now. I think we've been like very introspective in this podcast. I'm like, wait, I am being a perfectionist. It doesn't really matter. They taste good. They look good. I followed the recipe. They have the right consistency. Um, But sometimes you got to let some of that go. We've done this like maybe zero times before or once right. before in my case. So how do we expect to achieve perfection when we've literally never done it before? So that's kind of where I came up. I'm like, okay, with my purple frosting. And the kids had a good time. I mean, that was my takeaway. It was like, I didn't think it was fun, but the kids did. And if the idea is to make it a magical time for them, then maybe sometimes that's more important. And ultimately what ended up happening is I started them off with it and then they just sat there for an hour and made the made the shapes and whatnot. And even like were able to to kind of pull in the baby a little bit while I was like, I think making dinner or something else or whatever, you know? So it's an activity that, that they can do and I can be part of it or I can't be part of it. I can pop in and out just as I see fit. And that's ultimately, I think they'll have a good, you know, memory of that. And so, and they have a, they have Christmas presents for their grandma. So. Oh, perfect. And it's, (laughs) it's, um, fine motor skills. And I thought the same thing. My daughter who is 13 helped me for like three hours. She hung out with me. So like, that's good. You know, that's something to be thankful for. And I was asking different questions and, you know, we were trying just different things and I thought it was fun. So I love this sort of positive vibe we're evoking to move into the topic for this episode. Since 2020, let's be honest, it's been a bummer. (laughs) It's been, (laughs) I don't even know if that's, that's like the understatement of the year. So we thought today, rather than focusing in on all the negatives, and there sure have been many, we thought it might be nice to sort of take stock and discuss what we've learned from this year. You know, and I sort of consider myself a realist, and so I'm not going to necessarily say this is an optimistic list, but just the things that we feel like we've gleaned from this year what we've taken away, lessons learned. And so we thought this would be a great way to sort of close out our season of podcast. And so my first sort of takeaway, I think, is this idea of using technology, which might sound a little odd to some people out there, but I had been curious about teaching 
virtual synchronous classes. And I went from being a complete novice to what I consider to be kind of an expert, right? Um, Not only just using Zoom, but creating breakout rooms, using Google Meets to do conferences with students. I have a YouTube channel with my little how-to videos. I felt like this was a really productive year for me. The other thing that I think is really neat is Judith and I have been pretty transparent about this. I mean, neither of us have made a podcast before. And so I'm like really proud of the work that we've done as far as using technology and trying to kind of figure this out. I've learned a lot about using the editing software, learned a lot about recording, and I think we've both um, done a really awesome job there. So in some ways, I think the pandemic has forced me to become more innovative and creative with technology. What do you think, Judith? How is it for you? Yeah, I hear you on what you're saying. And I think especially for, you know, for uh, for your the teaching side of things, it's very useful. And I've, you know, some of it, I've benefited from some of that at, at work as well. There's some technology that I've been using recently that I started using recently that's been very helpful. Our go-to model usually when we speak with potential authors was always traditionally a phone call. And with everybody being so much more familiar with Zoom, um, it's much easier to schedule that. And then there's even, or to, to set that up and to, to get the buy-in from the people that we're trying to talk to. I liked seeing how um, different applications sort of started working together to make our lives easier. One of the things that I can think of is that I use Calendly to schedule meetings for conferences. And that now has like a link with Zoom where if somebody signs up for a Calendly meeting with me, it automatically generates a Zoom link. And then, you know, you can just click on that. So there are just these really sort of interesting ways in which technology has really there's been there have been so many improvements in the way that you know we use technology to run our lives that I think it's that's been really fascinating to see so I agree with you on that one. And I don't know if a more ambiguous reading of this is allowed in an episode where we're trying to be positive, but technology is a little bit of a double-edged sword for me. I'm personally always feel like challenged by it somehow. But then also, you know, with my daughter being home for the last like six weeks or something and all of her schooling being online, and we've already sort of before had issues with screen time where, you know, I think she has too much and she doesn't think so. And so it's always a factor. It's always something that there's a lot of fighting over at our house. And so now she's on a screen 24-7. So that's been a challenge for me to then get her to log off. But there were certain moments where I like popped in and saw her doing something on the screen afterwards, after school, where she's really starting to use the technology in ways that like I'm not familiar with. Like she's done some basic coding and she's done like other things. She's, you know, um, I think we were talking about this another time. She's been working with her classmates, like collaborating in Google to write stories. And there there are a few other things. Actually, she um, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I have been making Um, picture calendars for the the grandparents, both sides of the families for like eight years since she was born, basically. And she did that for me this year. Like she helped me last year. And this year she was like super excited about it. And she's like, you know, I want to do this. And so there are a lot of things where, you know, where it's been a real blessing. And one one like massive highlight for me as somebody who has been away from her family for a long time and especially during the pandemic, you know, not able to travel. My dad started this earlier in the year when he when it was his birthday, he invited all of the siblings to like a Zoom meeting. 
and I really, really enjoyed that. So I had that for my birthday. So that was that was a huge highlight for me that I was able to get um, both my siblings and their spouses and my parents into a Zoom call for my birthday. That was probably a better treat than any present could have been. So uh, definitely technology has has been a highlight in some ways this year. Yeah. I love your way of thinking about that. And I liked what you were saying about your daughter kind of using the skills and even growing beyond what we know. I know what you're saying because it's like now the screen is the only thing. And I kind of go back and forth of that. My 13-year-old daughter is a gamer and I'm like, <sighs> gosh, she's just on the computer all the time. But, you know, she plays these games with people she actually knows from school and I know the three or four kids and they're laughing and they're having fun. And I'm kind of like, at least it's some form of socialization, you know, at least she's not completely isolated. So I have mixed feelings on it too. And then whenever I look at my um, son's work, he is always like making these like different spreadsheets of like just different, like I guess all I could describe it was he was like analyzing the dialogue and the show we're watching and like mapping it out. So it was like some really nerdy textual analysis. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, okay. Like he's kind of doesn't want me to see what he's doing, but that's what he's doing. I just think they're going to have a different relationship with it than we'll expect and maybe what we want. I think we have to get behind that, right? Another really beneficial factor for me was like the virtual babysitting. Like when there were times when I just needed them engaged, I could just have them FaceTime their grandma and they would talk to their grandma for 20 minutes. Right, right, right. (laughs) So that's, you know, that's a variation of screen time, I guess. But uh, that was a good one, too. Yeah. And so another thing we talked about earlier on, we're both kind of curious about, and now that we've sort of actually engaged with this and experienced it is the idea of the online conference. What's nice about it, very much cheaper. I did always have qualms about, okay, if I'm going to this conference, is everyone going with me? Then that really ups the price when you're a family of six. Or the other choice is to go on my own. And there are sometimes resentments over that. You know, I just know that it can be a challenge to be the single parent or partner in charge of four kids when someone else is off, presumably gallivanting around town with all these intellectuals. The online might have assuaged some of that, and I think it can be nice. It's just a different situation. Part of what I like about conferencing is the travel end of it or getting up or meeting people. It's just a little bit different, but I do like the convenience, the cost. Yeah, agreed. I just recently had a conference and I was really, really impressed with how they had set everything up and how they sort of were able to use Zoom in a number of different ways, um, making it possible to reach out to other people personally in a group. And then they had for each of the for each of the panels that they had, they had a Q&A where people could put their questions in the Q&A and then everything was recorded. So that was really interesting too, that all of the panels and everything was recorded and is available for the participants for like a month or two after the conference. So that's kind of nice that you're able to see other panels that you weren't able to attend because maybe there was an overlap with the time. You know, usually if you have a face-to-face conference, that's just one and done. Now with this conference, you're able to log back into their platform and 
rewatch these panels. But they ended the recording, you know, usually panels are 90 minutes and these panels were 75 and then they ended the recording and then they did like an open period where they, you know, allowed everybody to turn their microphones on and just kind of communicate in that way. There is still sort of that awkwardness I that works better for some people than others, but I just really like the setup. They also had like on their website a separate networking page where, you know, people that wanted to network were able to set up profiles and then chat with other people and send other people chat requests. And so um, I think there are some really interesting ways in which the they can make conferences still work and still really productive. This was an international conference. And one of the one of the comments that I saw online was like, I love that I'm attending this without a jet lag, right? So people can attend from their homes and you can reach an international audience. And there, you know, there's still the time zone, you know, issue. But overall, it's just very practical and it does have a ton of benefits for sure. Eliminating some of that messiness, I think, is a good thing. In the end, conferencing is about learning new ideas and engaging with the scholarship. So while the social part of it is fun, added bonus, um, I think really if we're there to learn, I think some ways like avoiding the jet lag, like you said, and just kind of like being able to attend from home, I'm really a little more focused. So I agree with that. And it was nice to be able to do it from home and not have to like really mess up my schedule too much. Speaking of home, this was something that was really important for me. I've always wanted to sort of prove to the administrators at my college that working from home is doable. And as much as working from home has been a challenge, this was actually something that I had wanted to do at least for part of my week for a long time. Our leadership was, I think, reluctant to embrace the model of working from home because we were a business school at first. And so they really like to keep these like strict business hours, which were actually 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And so there wasn't a lot of flexibility. The only flexibility that I ever heard of is that in the summertime months, sometimes they would let people work for 10-hour days so they could have Friday off, which I thought sounded not very appealing to me. So now yeah. I think, yeah, I was like, I'm not doing that. That sounds even worse, actually. And I don't um, think that you're increasing productivity. No, like you get no. the same amount of, you get the same number of hours out of your employee, but I don't know that you're actually getting the same productivity. I don't think so. And I think one thing that's been really awesome is that they see that we are doing the same amount of work, if not more in some cases. I know I brought this up here, but it's like now that I've eliminated a lot of that extra padding of time and the commute, I'm just to work. I'm working on things. I'm very productive within those hours. I am actually thankful for that option. I mean, I would like to be able to at some point go back to the office and have that quiet space just for maybe part of the day. But, you know, I wanted this flexibility, especially in the summertime, to be like, hey, most of my work, let's be honest, most of the things that professors do can be done from a home office. Now we can even teach online. So I'm glad that they finally realized that. And they're probably saving money, too. And we're probably more productive. Right. And you're taking a lot of traffic off the roads. I agree with that. And I, you know, I was working remotely before the pandemic. So I was kind of used to that. But I wasn't used to working from home with the kids around. So I do think that there are a lot of benefits to working from home, especially if you're able to sort of set up a separate space. So that's kind of core for me is that I have an office that I can where I can 
close the door at the end of the day, which I didn't, you know, didn't always have. But it's funny because I was looking back through like, you know, I mentioned before on the podcast that I keep a bullet journal. And so I was going back through like my notes from this year. And there were like a couple times when both kids were home before the pandemic. And I can just like see in the pages like how stressed out I was about both of the kids being home. And then just like just like seeing how that's completely become like the normal thing. And, you know, a little bit, obviously, the expectations have adjusted. Like I know that when, you know, a kid pops their head into the room while I'm on a on a call or something, nobody is going to be concerned about that. And obviously, that maybe wasn't the case before the pandemic. It's just interesting to see how like you can adjust to those kinds of challenges. And I think I've gotten a lot more systematic over these last few months about knowing which tasks can happen when and like what's best to do while the kids are around. There are certain things in my in my job that I can perfectly well accomplish while the kids are around. And then there are some while, you know, maybe somebody is playing next to me or coloring next to me or even, you know, having a conversation with each other or something like that. And then there are other things that I need my that require my full attention that need to happen during nap time. You know, the baby is napping and the kids get some screen time. And so that's that's something I think that I've gotten a lot more systematic about and a lot more sort of strategic about. And that's been helpful in terms of increasing my productivity or maintaining my productivity, even though this was sort of a challenging time. That was another thing that I noticed when I kept going back to my journals. I don't want to suggest that this is like some sort of linear progression and like I wasn't able to do it at all at the beginning and now I'm really stellar at it. Like, it, you know, some days are better than others, obviously. And it really also depends on like what mood the kids are in and whatnot. And I think that's a big takeaway to that understanding that we have to sort of give ourselves a lot of grace as the common expression is now. We have to really forgive ourselves for some of those failures and some of those struggles, but then also acknowledge when something works really well and and try to have those takeaways and try to figure out, you know, how can I maybe do that again tomorrow? Or what was it that worked really well today? And then how can I do that again tomorrow? I think I should mention too, just in fairness, most of my working from home, my kids were actually in school this year. So I was at home and they were at school. And so I had from like eight to three to do all the things I needed to do. And that made it a lot more tolerable for me to work from home, right? It's only gotten tricky during the times when people started remote learning. I mean, we did remote learning starting whatever, March, right? March, April, May, June. That was kind of a tricky time. But this school year has been a little bit easier for me. And I always want to say, my children are much older than yours on the whole. I feel like sometimes I come across like, oh, everything's so easy for me. It's just that my kids are a little bit older and that does take away some of the stress for the parent that's in charge of facilitating the learning, I think for sure. Yeah, I noticed that my older daughter did pretty well she also started the school year face-to-face and then went remotely. And what they offered was really a full day program. Like they logged on at 8.45 together and they logged off at like four. Um, And they basically had um, a mix of synchronous and asynchronous materials and they had breaks scheduled. And that was mostly predictable for me. Like we got a schedule and they really stuck to the schedule. So I knew what her off times were that, you know, obviously that didn't always match with 
the baby's nap times or whatever, but I tried to sort of align it as much as I could. That also gave me the ability to sort of schedule um, phone calls and things like that, like things that I have to schedule for my work. I was able to schedule that around their day. And then most afternoons, she didn't have live meetings, but she had asynchronous things where they had recorded videos and had given her assignments. And she she stuck with the program. I really have to give her like a lot of um, credit there. She did a great job, you know, considering that she's a third grader, sticking with what we what she was supposed to do. And um, my son, you know, who's four, started out really well entertaining himself, but he's he's over it. Like I I know that he like doesn't really know what to do with himself anymore. And so um, the age definitely plays into what's manageable and what's not. Yeah, that sounds great, though. I would say a little sideline tangent is just kudos to all the K through 12 teachers who really also had to really reinvent the wheel here in the United States and just how innovative and accessible. And I just saw such a world of difference between what happened in March it just seems like they really got everything laid out and worked out really well. And I'm, I'm pleased as well with what's been going on. And I've seen in my children's Google classrooms as well. Another thing that I thought I put on this list, which I know sounds a little bit, I still feel a little foolish even talking about this, but just is the convenience of online shopping, delivery, pickup, I had never used this uh, prior to the pandemic. I felt like it was a little bougie for me, to be honest, a little bourgeoisie. Um, It just, it wasn't my, I'm just like, I can shop for myself. My husband was doing some work at a friend's house one day. I think he was putting up wallpaper for her and she had a grocery delivery and he was just like, what? You have people deliver your groceries? Like it seemed so fancy, you know? I'd never done it because I was like, oh, then you, you know, what, what's that like? And I'm still, I'm still a little funky about it, but I did use this service just a few times because when things really went down in March, we did like a huge shop and I mean, just bought like for, you know, a month. But then after that, I was still kind of reticent about going out there and shopping. So I've used, we, we're fortunate. We have a Whole Foods probably three miles away. And because okay. I'm on Amazon, they will like do it for free. So there's that. I'll, I just make sure to tip my um, driver or delivery person. I love that idea. It's so convenient. Most of the times it's just like right out on my porch. Anyway, I thought that was fun. Never tried it before yeah. this. I had tried it a couple times right when I had the brand new baby because I needed something and my husband was at work and I didn't want to leave her and I didn't want to bring her into the store. And so I tried it a couple times. So I really discovered this for like my big box stuff to anything that's non-perishable. I do also like to order through that. I do prefer to do my own shopping and my husband keeps like nudging me and he's like, why don't you order your groceries? And I'm like, well, you know, if I, I don't go through the aisles, so then I don't realize what I forgot to put on my list. And I have multiple reasons why I don't want to do it. But what I do appreciate about all of this is that it's become completely understood and non-negotiable that I go by myself. And so that's a huge plus because before it was always like, okay, which of the kids like want to come with me or, you know, do I need it? Like, what's he doing? And now it's just like, nope, I'm going to the grocery store and nobody's coming with me. And that is something that I have really enjoyed. So that's my positive takeaway. And I think it's okay to talk about those kinds of things that help make our lives, you know, as 
as mothers and as working mothers easier because you do have to fit it into your weekly schedule, right? You're still working and, you know, and you're still, for me, it's, I'm still expected to work a sort of a regular like eight to five, nine to five job. And so I do have to figure out how to fit that in. And I tend to, you know, figure out when the grocery stores aren't so busy. And so those are things that I do think about. And and I think that's that's fair to talk about. And that's fair to mention. It's part of all that mental load slash emotional labor. Shopping is not usually my favorite thing. But if I can maybe sneak in a little Starbucks or something on the way, that's yes. that's better. <laughs> Just a few moments for myself. So I've read a lot about this online. It seems like a lot of the things we're talking about probably are in tune with a lot of our working female parents and male parents and definitely probably for academics. But since I've been at home so much more and not really going out, I feel like, A, I'm not really making any of those frivolous, ridiculous kind of purchases stuff that I don't really need. And then secondly, and I've heard this a lot since the pandemic hit, the clutter was just stressing me out. And so we've really tried to maybe curb some of that buying because we're just, I'm not going to go out to like whatever it is, the TJ Maxx and buy some tchotchkes to add to my collection because I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to put my health or my family's health on the line because, you know, I get a new placemat or something, whatever. Right. Uh, But since I'm at home so much, it's just like when I'm looking at Zoom and I'm looking at things, I've really tried to clean things up. It's hard, though, because we've inherited a lot of things from my grandparents and then just a lot of stuff. And, you know, it's hard to make those decisions about what to keep and whatnot. But we did do a little home remodeling and renovation. I thought that was a positive. But just getting rid of some of the junk, you know, I just had to because when you're here all day, every day, it just starts to build up. So I thought that was a really good takeaway for me as well. That's very true. I struggle a lot with getting rid of things. And so um, we tend to organize. (laughs) We tend to just like keep going through and saying, okay, we're going to get this organized. And then like we get another set of shelves and, and, uh, you know, somewhere to like put things. Um, I think we, I could be better with it's it's hard my husband sometimes will go through and be like you know we need to get some stuff out of here and i'm like yes i agree there's too much clutter but then it's like but not that but not that but not that thing but you know and so that sounds really great and i'm a little jealous that's something i really struggle with i struggle with the clutter but i also struggle with getting things out of the house so i i my goal is always to get better about uh bringing less things into the house because once they're in i have a really hard time i don't know if that makes sense It does. And I have like a lot of pictures and frames. And this is because my grandparents passed away and I want to keep their memory. And then Ernie's grandparents have passed away. And, you know, the frames I think are nice. But at what point do you say, okay, what do you do with all the photos? So that can be tricky. And then books, I'm sure I'm sure we're in the same situation here. It's like, I don't want to get rid of some of them because there's just that off chance that I might use it again. Before the pandemic, I had a little ritual, which is I try to find books and I didn't care if the students were going to read them or not. But I would like give away some of my fiction books to my classes just based on like trying to figure out what this person might like. And I don't know if my choices were good or bad. And some of them were like really wild choices where I'm like, this student, if they actually read this, this is going to blow their mind. But I got rid of my books that way as well. And they thought it was, some of them thought it was really cool. And I was just like, you know, honestly, I'm just trying to pass on the knowledge and get these out of my house, you know? (laughs) Right, right. That's a good way though. It's That's funny too, because a lot of my books are still in boxes somewhere. And I'm just thinking about getting shelves and where to put them because I really miss having my books 
folks out. So that's funny that that's sort of like an op- opposite impulse. I don't want to get rid of anything that I used for my dissertation or in or for my earlier school stuff because I just there's so many memories and so much pride somehow that's connected to like the books in and of themselves that I have a hard time getting those getting rid of those so those will all hopefully eventually end up on a shelf so that I can look at them I guess I don't know No, it's nice and you don't know if you pick up a class in the future or something like that that's why I never want to get rid of them because I had read Huckleberry Finn I know this is just the one that comes to mind I read it in my master's program and it was one of those nice annotated like Norton annotated editions or something like that and had all my notes. And then I had to teach that book, you know, three years later. And I was like, this is sweet. I have all my notes. I remember what I was thinking. It's got all these great resources. So I don't like getting rid of that stuff. And I just, and it's nice to look. I really do. It's like, sometimes I'm impressed. Like, I can't believe I read, you know, Invisible Man in a week. That is a long book. Yeah, I don't. That's uh, funny. That was one of the ones that I did not make it through. That kind of links to one of my takeaways, um, which is that learning doesn't always happen in in textbook ways, right? Uh, For me, uh, one of the biggest light bulbs that went off was when the quarantine started and we were supposed to do this homeschooling thing. And my daughter worked through her worksheets in a day and a half. And I wasn't sure how to keep her busy and how to keep her entertained. There was a meme or something that circulated that had like 16 activities or something that count as learning. And, you know, the standard example, of course, is always like cooking and baking because you can do like the fractions and the math with the cups and and cooking and baking in general, I think, is something that children really enjoy doing and, and they learn a lot from it. To me, it was like once I started embracing the value of things like pretend play and doing art and even just being involved in household chores, the kids really do take a lot of pride if they are given some responsibility. It doesn't always work. And we still have a lot of fighting about picking up after themselves and things like that. But there are some things that, you know, you can you can share with them and that there's a lot of learning in those moments. And once I once I embraced that and once I realized that, I was able to let go of a lot of the pressure to sit them down and go, you know, I I'm not a flashcard kind of person to begin with, but I didn't feel the pressure to pull up more worksheets or to email the teacher and ask for more work or anything like that because there were so many other ways that I saw it sort of in our day-to-day lives. So that was a huge takeaway for me and that was a way where I was able to cut everybody a little bit of slack. That's awesome. I like that technique and I think that adds definitely to the quality of our children's education, but just existence in general, right? Like make, it sounds like a cliche, but just like trying to find those teachable moments throughout the day. It's not always going to be like you said, in a worksheet or in a flashcard because right. God help me, I'm I'm not a flashcard person <laughs> either. So, And it helps, like this is linked to another sort of takeaway for me. It also is an opportunity to get to know the kids a little bit better. Be- and it, you know, it allows them to sort of drive their own learning and you can see they can take initiative a little bit. You can see what they're gravitating toward and what's not so interesting to them. And you can really kind of get a sense for their personalities a little bit better. I've learned a lot about my kids through being stuck in the house with them over the last few months. And so that's been a really meaningful experience for me as well. I think that's a really great way to sort of like wrap up our thoughts as we move into like our kind of final favorites of the pandemic. But it is a good opportunity to really spend some time with our children because we're all here, right? And we had some nice times out in nature this year. We had some nice walks. 
we've done some things that I think we used to do before, but maybe we've tried some other like new things for the family as well. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I know this is another cliche, but everyone says time goes by so fast. But honestly, it really does. I have this son. He's like a man. You know, it's just I I just remember when he was a little tot hanging out with us and reading, you know, Dr. Seuss books with him. And it just seems like the blink of an eye. And I know that's a super cliche, but it's interesting to get to know them in a different way as like young adults. So I appreciate that as well. So you thought this would be kind of fun to finish up with like maybe favorites of the pandemic. Tell me more. I just was kind of trying to think through some of the books that I read and some of the shows that I watched and some of the things that we did. And so I thought it might be fun to share some of those. I'll start with one and then I'll let you pick one. I read a lot more especially during the first half of the year than I did in previous years. And one of my absolute favorites for fiction was Empire Falls. This was a Pulitzer Prize winner from the early 2000s. um, And it was so great. I loved it so much. It was just a story that like I couldn't put down. And it was I don't know. It was really amazing. So that was that was a favorite that I can recommend. And then for nonfiction, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, I read Carla Naumburg's um, How to Stop Losing Your SHIT with Your Kids. And that was just such a pandemic read because it really explained how meltdowns happen and how, you know, both for kids and for adults and how the how the brain functions in those, what happens in the brain in those situations and how we can sort of prevent meltdowns from happening. And that was a really insightful read for me. So those were two of my favorites for this year. Do you have any favorite reads? I was at the MLA. It was Seattle. It was January. And the keynote speaker there was Viet Thanh Nguyen. And I actually went to a used bookstore and found of one of his books there is a collection of short stories called The Refugees. And I really enjoyed reading that. But he actually spoke about Ocean Vong's book, um, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, a novel. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Ocean Vong. Um, it was just really uh, a powerful novel, but also really one that was like hard and difficult to read because of the content. And so I think it was an important book to read, but also I just, it really stuck with me. And I read that early on. I had a good run with reading at the beginning of this thing, but I think I started to falter three or four months into all this, you know? Yeah. So um, I enjoyed those. So let's check out something that might be a little less intellectual. What else are you liking then? So we had a favorite board game this year that I thought might be interesting to share. And I'll keep that short because I don't know if everybody is into into playing board games. But we love Ticket to Ride. I don't know if you've played that before. Um, it's a game that is a little bit strategic. It's a little bit luck. It's just engaging enough that you can still have conversations while you're playing. But it doesn't get boring. And my eight-year-old plays it and my in-laws play it. And so it's like a family game. Whenever we get together, we all play it and everybody enjoys it. So that's a great family game. Are you guys into board games at all or not so much? Um, so I have to tell you something funny. Uh, we got a game called What Do You Meme? And it's Oh, I have that. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it was funny because I accidentally bought like the grown up one. And so (laughs) I had to like take out like 25 cards that were all related to, you know, things that I just didn't think my kids needed to know about, like oral sex Mm -hmm. or whatever. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, But they're familiar with the genre of the meme. Like they all know those memes. So we got that. But then I ended up getting the what do you mean meme 
family. And we thought that was pretty fun. So that was a fun one. And we also really like this game that's for kids called Headbands. I don't know if you know that game, but it's, it's fun. It's easy. It just everyone, there's little cards and you have little snappable headbands you put on your head. Everyone kind of puts a card on their head and you have to figure out what you are. I think it is all yes or no questions. So like, am I an animal? Yes. Okay. Am I a mammal? No. So then you figure out, you know, and everyone Mm -hmm. has to go around and take a turn. We take some liberties with the, uh, rules of the game. Like I usually let my daughter just ask a bunch of questions, but it's a good, you know, it's fun. It's hilarious, you know, trying to figure it out. I'm not good with like Monopoly. I feel like it gets too long winded. And then my kids are not always good with it because they don't like losing. So our kids got the Monopoly Junior and they like to play it. I tend to like lose really quickly. I don't, and I don't do, I swear I don't do it on purpose, but it happens. And then I can bow out, but at least I played with them. But it's not my favorite game either. I'll be honest. Did you watch anything that you like that you want to talk about? I prefer watching TV shows over movies. I just don't like to get invested in some somebody in a person and then just after 90 minutes it's all done, you know. So, I and I don't know that shows stick with me all that much. Like I, you know, most recently we've been watching Blackish and I still really enjoy that. Um I still really like going back to that. I think the one thing that has probably saved my sanity the most is actually stand-up comedy. I do enjoy stand-up comedy a lot and that's something that my husband and I both enjoy watching. So that's been something that we just kind of go through. You know, Netflix has a ton of those now. And so we just kind of go through those. That's something, that's one of the few things where that really make me laugh. And so that's enjoyable to me. And that's something that keeps me sane. And we've been watching a lot of like YouTube channels. My husband has recently gotten into all kinds of outdoorsy things. And so I'll watch like fishing and hunting and, and other videos with him. So I, I, and the one, the one other thing that I will say that I enjoy watching with him when he does is like shows about Alaska. I just think that like Alaska sounds like such a wonderful place and I would love to go see it. I somehow like get really, I get really sucked into those shows. You know, it's not quality television, but what can I say? (laughs) You know, now I have some like items for like post pandemic. A, we'll have to go see some stand up comedy together because I love comedy as well. Have you watched uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? While we're on uh, this. Yeah, I actually, you know what? I started that. I'm like somewhere in the middle of it, but she's, yeah, she's, she's enjoyable. Because that's, yeah, that's one of my, that's been one of my um, favorites recently. So that makes waiting, sense. Waiting for that series, to, waiting for that next um, season to come out. But I don't think they actually, they have been coming out like the day after Thanksgiving for the last three years. But I think the next season, they're not even shooting until the spring because, they're using they were like they have all these scenes that have like a ton of extras like the one like the last season's um opener had like her giving a show in like a airplane hangar that was full of people and i read an article and they were like we can't shoot a scene like that right now so um they're not able to start shooting until next like early next year so we have to wait a little while but that's a good one for sure so I binged a lot and I was going to tell you, I've got a workaround for your, you know, um, movie thing, but it only applies if you can handle the genre. We watched every Marvel movie in a row. So at least you're having some continuity there because you're like, oh, there's Captain America. Oh, now he's in the next one, too, just for a little cameo. Um, We watched all of those, which is dorky. (laughs) 
I also watched, this is insane, but my daughter is really into the show Supernatural. I don't know if I mentioned that before. And so I have watched 15 seasons of Supernatural, and those uh, have like 22 to 25 episodes per season. I think we started in June or July. Um, I'm down to the last four. And I will not say it is like the best TV show ever. There's some people that really love it. I think it's funny. I think it's best when it's kind of like it's almost poking fun at the horror genre in a way. It it did something for me where like I could talk to my daughter about this. She sends me little things or she talks to me about the characters and like she's so upset with the ending and, you know, um, oh, they should have done this, this and this. And they did a disservice to this character by not showing him in the season finale or whatever. So these are both kind of dorky examples. But I'm just like, you know what? I have two teenagers that want to like hang out with me and watch shows. My son and I watched Enterprise, which is like the most hated incarnation of Star Trek ever, by the way, which was like surprising. But everyone hates that one. We know why. Mm -hmm. But we watched that together, you know, and he came up here and we watched like a couple episodes a night, talk about them. If my teenage son is willing to hang out with me and watch Star Trek, I'm just going to take that as a win. So I know it's a lot of media, it's a lot of screen time, but it gives us something to like talk about. So I think that's a win. TV, we like it here. What can I say? It's Michigan, it's cold. There's not a lot going on other than that. And like you said, the YouTube videos, I'm game for that too. So (laughs) yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I would rather spend my time doing something else, but I don't judge anyone. And if it's something that you can do with your kids, uh, more power to you, I think. That's wonderful. It seems like this was a fun way to round out the year. We would love to hear from our listeners about any positive takeaways or negative takeaways. So if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where can they find us? We are on Instagram at PhD and Parenting. And then we also have an email where you can send us an email if you have a little bit more to say. You can send us an email at PhD and Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to coming back to you with another episode next week. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. 